Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could be with us today. When I think of truly great speeches, a few instantly come to mind. President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream, and there's another in more recent history, when President Barack Obama sang Amazing Grace. It was June 26, 2015. President Obama was in Charleston, South Carolina. Ten days earlier, a white gunman entered one of the oldest black churches in the country and shot and killed nine black churchgoers during Bible study. It was a horrific and hateful act that shocked the nation. President Obama traveled to Charleston to give a eulogy for one of the victims, Reverend Clementa Pinckney. During his speech, as he consoled the grieving congregation, the president suddenly broke into song and led the church in singing Amazing Grace, a spiritual hymn of hope and healing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. Cody Keenan was President Obama's chief speechwriter during that time, and he recently wrote a book about his time in the Obama administration. It's called Grace, President Obama and Ten Days in the Battle for America. I spoke with Keenan last fall. To start, I asked him about what grace means to him. I don't think I'd ever thought about the word and what it meant until that week. And I remember first talking to the president's pastor, Joshua Dubois, um, because it had a a slightly different meaning in the AME church, uh, in Mother Emanuel church. And he said it was the free and unmerited favor of God, you know, basically uh, getting, getting blessings that we haven't necessarily earned or deserve. And that was a theme that just sort of kept coming back over the course of that week. Um, You know, after this, horrific act of of white supremacy and hatred happened in Charleston. Two days afterwards, all the families of the victims went to the killer's arraignment and one by one, you know, through their their cries and wails, they forgave the killer, which was just sort of staggering. Mm -hmm. Um, It it wasn't something that I would have been able to do. Um, And, you know, Joshua Dubois told me, you know, that's, they're they're literally practicing what they've been preached. That's, That's a fundamental tenet of the AME church. Yes, no one expected that uh, of, of those family members. And and so in, in your book, you write about events that happened in 2015, uh, seven years ago. So why write about those memories now? Why is now the right time for us as a nation to be talking about having grace? There are two answers to that. The first is uh, I kept I was still working for President Obama until last year. So I, I didn't feel right <laughs> had to writing wait. a book that was largely about him uh, mm-hmm. while I was on his payroll. That's That's one. <laughs> The other is I think it's timeless. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's, it was the Trump years that actually solidified the book in my mind. Um, when we were living through those 10 days in the White House, you know, it's not like we're counting, all right, this is day four. It, it became clear in retrospect when we were living through the opposite of grace. Um, and I first thought up the idea for the book in 2017. And it just, I just, I just let it marinate for a while until it really crystallized and I was ready to sit down and write it. And so in, you know, when you told the former president, when you told Barack Obama that you were going to write this book, um, a book that really is focusing on a painful time, uh, what was his reaction? 
he was into it. Um, he, you know, he's he's still working on the second volume of his memoirs, which will cover these ten days. So he said, just don't take all my good stuff. But <laughs> your um, timing was good. You know, yeah. Um, you know, to to give him a draft of any speech is is frightening enough. To give him a draft of my book was completely terrifying. Um, but I also knew he's competitive, so I knew he'd want to read something about himself, and he read it pretty quickly and uh, responded with some with some very nice words and just one edit to the entire book that that actually made it better. So he's he's still got it uh, in a way that was that's also kind of annoying. Uh, I think you just used the word terrifying as describing yeah. what it's like to write a speech uh, for a president, but and also to write a speech for someone who is a gifted writer himself. Yeah, and that's the point. I I, I appreciated your introduction. It's not that I was. Um, nervous to write for the most powerful man in the world that said I was nervous to write for somebody who was that good of a writer on his own. And, you know, he's on record saying I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. To this day, oh, he doesn't lovely. Let me forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, imagine your boss telling you every day he's better than you. Um, <clears throat> and to this day, he still reminds us that he wrote the 2004 convention speech that made him famous by himself. Mm-hmm. But he always viewed speechwriting as a collaborative endeavor. Um, something that we did together. He, he, what he wanted from us was a draft that he could work with. It didn't have to be perfect. Where I often sort of failed is that I wanted to get him a draft that was perfect. Um, you wanted to impress him. And, and he, was, he was a good boss. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of stories about, about that. But, but you wanted to get him something he'd be happy with, not just something he could work with. Um, and that was always terrifying to, to, to try to live up to his level. Mm. Uh, uh, Cody, I saw a, a recent appearance of yours on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert uh, a few weeks ago, and you told a great story about writing a State of the Union address for Barack Obama and then handing it over to him uh, to read and then being surprised by his reaction. Could could you share that story again? Sure. Yeah. You know, writing the State of the Union address is something every young speechwriter dreams of doing until you actually do it. Um, <laughs> It's most of them are unmemorable. They're a laundry list. Inertia mm-hmm. makes it difficult to change that. And we would always sit down every year and say, this is the year we're going to do it differently. Um, but you just don't quite get there. So I had, you know, I'd ruined my third consecutive Christmas writing a uh, writing a draft and I sent it to him eight days early, which was a new record. Everything was in there. I was really proud of it. Um, and I didn't hear anything for a day, which which is starting to drive me crazy. His assistant, Ferial, calls me the next day and says, hey, can you come up? Um, and that's not usually so the president could just give you a gold star and send you on your way. And he was in his private dining room off the Oval Office and uh, asked me to sit down. And he says, how are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm fine. He said, how were your holidays? I said, they were, they were fine. I was writing this speech. How is the speech? Just tell me. <laughs> um, and he said, well, here's the thing. Everything is in here. And I thought, great. Uh, he said, well – it's great in that, you know, we're in the best shape we've ever been in a week out. And everything in my body just kind of relaxed. And then he said, but we still have a week so we can make it better. And what I mean by everything being in here is that every sentence says something. Every word means something. The entire speech is at a 10. And I need parts of it down at 8, 6, 2. Um, I need some quiet moments, some emotional moments. And I said, yeah, I know. I mean, that's the thing about a state of the union address, though, sir. Everything has to be in here. And he said, you're not picking up what I'm putting down. You ever listen to Miles Davis? And, you know, I, I told him not really. I would put it on sometimes when my then-girlfriend would come over. But um, <laughs> I wasn't a big jazz guy. He said, well, the thing about Miles Davis is uh, it's the notes you don't play. It's the silences. It's the space between. That's, made, that's what made him so good. So tonight I want you to go home. Don't do any work. Pour yourself a drink and listen to some Miles Davis. And then come back here tomorrow and find me some silences. 
Mm. And it ended up making sense. Yeah. And, and I did. It was as much as you can for a State of the Union address. Uh, you know, ironically enough, because we're, we're on Minnesota Public Radio, the, the centerpiece of that State of the Union address was a young woman from Minneapolis named Rebecca Erler. And she had written a letter to the president in 2014 um, just about her life and her family's life and what they'd been through since the Great Recession. And it was it, it stood out. A young woman on our team named Hallie Ledbetter um, found the letter and said, you know, this is really somebody we should consider visiting over the summer, having the president go go meet with her. Um, he had lunch with her. They had, a, they had a Juicy Lucy. I can't remember which restaurant. <laughs> And she introduced him uh, at a speech out uh, on on I can't remember which park it was on a lake somewhere and she introduced him before an economic speech and she was she was charmingly terrified, um, but it was this beautiful letter about and just so well written about about what her family had been through the sacrifices they had to make for each other just to make it through, and then they were kind of finally coming out on the other end by 2014 um, with better jobs she had gone back to school to to try to get a better job their their kids were growing up great. And as I was preparing the State of the Union dress, I was thinking, you know, every year we do this thing with the First Ladies Box where uh, there are a bunch of, of, you know, quote unquote, real people up there. And, and we use the phrase real people as a compliment, as in they're people who are not steeped in politics or, yes. or live at the White House. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, in, instead of doing a whole bunch of real people this year, what if we just did one? What if we just wrote the speech around Rebecca's letter? And the president spent a good 10 minutes in the speech um, telling her story. And, and, and tying it to specific policies that would help, um, you know, child care, for example. She lived, I think, a mile from the University of Minnesota. And child care for her kids cost almost as much as a full year's worth of tuition at the University of Minnesota. So things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just beautiful. And, and one of the, you know, after the president gave me that directive, one of the lines I added to the speech when I was telling their, when he was telling their story was that she and her husband were young in love in America. And it doesn't get any better than that. And that's not the typical line you'll hear in a State of the Union address. And in fact, a whole bunch of, of people in the White House tried to delete it to save space to add their policy things. So they said, no, you know what? That's a line that the American people might actually like. You know, it almost sounded like a Mellencamp lyric. Um, it sticks and, with uh, you, has meaning. It, it gives you a visual. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the president said she reminded him of his mother um, when she was younger. And, and to this day, my wife and I are in touch with uh, Rebecca and her husband, Ben. They've become good friends. That's a lovely story. And as you talk about letter writing, uh, you got your start in politics working for Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, reading constituent letters. Uh, What did you learn in that job working with him that you believe put you on this path to work for President Obama? Yeah, it was my first job in politics right out of college, uh, working in his windowless mailroom, reading and routing mail and walking the senator's dogs and running memos around the hill. And um, I love that you you just stated that it was windowless. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> windowless. Yeah, I got used to it because my office in the second term in the White House was windowless as well. There's a, a theme running through there. Um, but you learn really quickly. You know, I, I had just spent four years at, at Northwestern University getting a political science degree. So you learn all about political theory. And it was also at a time when the West Wing was one of the top shows on television. So it looks all dramatic. Mm-hmm. But you get there and, and the, when the first thing you do is read letters from people uh, like that letter from Rebecca, they're often not even – they're not even asking for – they're definitely not asking for handouts. Sometimes they're not even asking for help. A lot of times they just want people to know what their lives are like. Right. And there's kind of this this fundamental nugget of hope at the center of that, that, that somebody on the other end will read that letter and care. And it, I'm so grateful that that happened to me early in my career because it just changed the way I thought about politics. And Ted Kennedy was someone who just demanded constantly to know – 
how many people will this help? How many people will this help? Are we doing the right things here by them? Uh, and that stuck with me forever. And so so did the letters. And, and fortunately, it was President Obama who, right before he took office, he'd already he, – he'd, he'd won um, – He'd won the election in 2008, and he was, you know, immediately wrapped in this bubble that you just can't escape from. And he missed being able to be in, you know, people's backyards in Iowa and Minnesota and, and just talking to people one-on-one. So he said, um, I want 10 letters every single night from real people and make sure they're representative because it doesn't do me any good if they're all like, you know, you're so great. Uh, and he would make sure that we got to read them all every night too. And for all the polling data we had access to and focus groups – it was actually the letters that were most important because you get this kind of real look at what people are going through. And more importantly, you get to read how they think about things. And it would often be completely different than the way cable news pundits talk about stuff. Uh, and I would often, you know, take ideas from people's letters and the way they describe things and write them into speeches for the president. You know, I'm still uh, I'm happy to hear that people are still writing letters to the president, but it's even more heartening to know that they're read and, and appreciate it. So I think that that is what's wonderful to hear. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Cody Keenan. Cody was the senior advisor and director of speech writing for former President Barack Obama. And he's the author of a new book called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Uh, Cody, let's take a phone call. Uh, in Roseville, we have Amy on the line. Good morning, Amy. Oh, good morning, Angela. Good morning, Cody. Thanks for taking my call. Cody, I just looked up your picture. And I see, uh, it looks like you identify as a white man. And um, I, my question is, um, as a speechwriter for President Obama, how, how, did, um, how were the conversations around um, or trust with your words and, and writing for him um, as a as a person of color, as a president of color, how what was talked about, what wasn't talked about, what was your experience, um, particularly with um, regard to um, race? Writing about race. Okay, that's Amy in Roseville. So, so Cody, she wants to know, what was it like uh, writing about race uh, for President Obama when he was giving speeches? It's a great question and very fair, and I spent a lot of time on it in this book. Um, because, you know, as I say in the book, I, there were plenty of times where I never felt whiter than when I was writing for the first black president. Um, as a speechwriter, you can write for anybody. You know, it, it requires a sense of empathy, of, of getting in your audience's shoes and walking around for a little while. I've written for uh, Michelle Obama. I've written for all sorts of different people. Um, but when it comes to writing for the first black president on race, that, that is a different – that's uncharted territory. And there were times when it could be terrifying. I mean, I already used that word to describe other Okay, speeches, I'm keeping count. Four terrifying yeah, so far. Yeah. <laughs> to write on race, you you wanted to I, – I wanted to make sure that whatever draft I gave him uh, did right by him. I didn't want to make a fool of myself. Um, you know, even as, as a white progressive, you, you can think you're on the right side of every issue, but you haven't necessarily lived the same life as your audience. There are limits to empathy. Um, I'll never know what it's like to be a black man in America. And for all the things that Barack Obama and I have in common, uh, we're both from Chicago. Um, we're from different parts of Chicago that are, you know, just a few miles away, but worlds apart. So fortunately, our, our, even though I was the chief speechwriter, he was really our chief speechwriter. So I would sit down with him on the front end and really prod him with questions, try to understand what he wants to say and why. Um, but the, the reason these ones were more difficult is because you knew that audiences wanted to hear certain things from him. 
and sometimes they would be diametrically opposed to what other audiences would want to hear. And it was a, it was a fine line he had to walk, especially after moments like Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and Charleston. Um, and you know, I think by the end of the administration, um, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote, "For eight years, Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell." And I think that was the first time I really exhaled in all eight years. It was like we made it because um, it was difficult. You mentioned Trayvon Martin, and I remember a speech that uh, former President Obama gave where he said if, if he had had a son that he would have looked like Trayvon. Yep, yep, and, and that was not something any of us wrote for him as speechwriters. That was something he came up with by himself, and, and that's, that's part of the challenge of writing about race is just we can, we can do our best, and we may not get quite there. That, that was all him. Um, he, I go into detail in the book about how he basically tore up and rewrote the back half of, of the eulogy for Reverend Pinkney in Charleston when he gave the race speech. Uh, that's how we shorthanded the race speech in 2008 after his pastor said some pretty awful things about America. Mm-hmm. John Favreau, my predecessor as chief speechwriter, drafted the speech, and it was sort of the same thing. Obama kind of tore up half of it and rewrote it himself. And in a line like, I can no more disown him than I can disown my white grandmother is not the type of thing that a speechwriter would write for the president. That, that is something that he only he could come up with on his own. Deeply personal. Um, Cody, uh, the, the book covers a specific 10-day period during uh, President Obama's second term in office, um, which you call the 10 most dramatic days of his whole presidency. And uh, again, that horrific massacre had just happened. A gunman kills a pastor and eight other people at a Bible study in a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, as the head speechwriter, Cody, you had to help uh, your boss, the president, find the words as he delivered the eulogy for uh, the Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Uh, how do you even know where to begin in writing that uh, with, with so much sadness and grief, not just for the families in that community, but for the whole country? Yeah, that that was one of the more difficult ones. You know, we had there was a lot of drama that week about whether or not he would give a eulogy at all. Um, he didn't want to, and I didn't want to write it. And because it was too was because, too much to insert himself in it, or why didn't he initially want to do it? It was actually because we had done so many eulogies after mass shootings. Mm. Um, <clears throat> by that point, I think we had done fourteen together. And going back a few years before the book, right after Newtown, um, and we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Newtown, that's when 20 little kids were murdered in their classroom in Connecticut, along with uh, six teachers who died trying to protect them. The president had just been reelected, and he decided to set aside uh, his second term agenda and try to do something about guns. And there, we knew how long the odds would be um, with the filibuster in the Senate. It, it would be almost impossible. But we had a little spark of hope, two senators uh, both conservative with A ratings from the NRA, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Democrat, and uh, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, Republican. They wrote a background checks bill together un- for universal background checks. And so we thought, you know what, let's let's go for it. Um, and it had the support of 90% of the American people, 80% of Republicans, and even 70% of NRA households. And the president kind of barnstormed the country for a couple months. Um, and then by April of 2013, with the parents of the Newtown children looking on from the Senate gallery, uh, Republicans blocked a vote on it. And it was about as cynical as I've ever seen the president get. And he went out and gave a pretty heated statement in the Rose Garden that I'd, I'd written I'd written it angry. And he said, uh, you know, I'm going to take this out there and I'm going to use it as a guide, but I'm just going to do my own thing. And I said, you do you. And uh, it was pretty awful. And, and he came back inside right after that speech. And it was one of the three times I've seen him angry. And he said, you know, what do I do the next time this happens? Mm. You know, if we've decided as a country that we're just not going to do anything about this, 
I don't want to go out and give another eulogy after this. I don't want to end this cycle every time by going out and giving a speech that, that just kind of lets everyone know they can move on because we should not move on from this until we do something about it. And he had to do it a couple more times over the next two years because there were mass shootings on military bases and he's commander in chief. But Charleston was really the first big test of it because this, you can't really rank mass shootings. Right. Well, um, Cody, many people remember the, the moment when the, the president, um, when President Obama was eulogizing Reverend uh, Pinckney and he seemingly, you know, spontaneously broke out into song and sang the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, we played a little bit in the introduction at the beginning of the show, but I actually want to play a longer clip of that. Uh, moment for our listeners. Uh, this is President Obama in his eulogy for Reverend Clementa Pinckney. An open heart. <coughs> that more than any particular policy or analysis That's right. is what's called upon right now, I think. Yeah. What a friend of mine, the writer Marilyn Robinson, calls that reservoir of goodness beyond and of another kind, that we are able to do each other in the ordinary cause of things. Mm -hmm. That reservoir of goodness. Mm -hmm. If we can find that grace, uh -huh. anything is possible. Yeah. I'm I'm if we can tap that grace, uh -huh. everything can change. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet. The sound that saved a wretch like me. I That was former President Barack Obama from his eulogy for Reverend Clementa Pinckney uh, after a shooting at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina there in 2015. Nine people killed. We're talking right now with Cody Keenan, who was the senior advisor and director of speech writing for former President Barack Obama at that time. Cody has written a book uh, called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody, uh, what led up to that moment where uh, we hear Barack Obama suddenly singing Amazing Grace? Uh, was that part of the speech you wrote or how did that come about? It was a whole confluence of things. Um, you know, first and foremost, it was, it was the families and what they did by forgiving the killer. Uh, and it's just this it was this extraordinarily both painful and hopeful thing to watch. 
that's why he decided to give the eulogy ultimately because of what those families did. And I really struggled through writing it. And he's admitted this publicly. He didn't give me anything to go on. Um, he basically – we had a pretty heated debate in the Oval Office about whether or not to do it. And when he finally said let's do it, he just kind of directed me. He said talk about guns, talk about race, talk about the Confederate flag and wrap it all up in grace. And I was just like, what? Well, and uh, Cody, when you said there was a heated debate, what does that look like? Do you, do you get to yell at the president? Do you get, I mean, what does a heated debate with the president look like when you're talking about a speech? Yeah, for, well, fortunately, he and I were on the same side in this one. Okay. Um, it was We were in the Oval Office. Valerie Jarrett was, was pushing very hard for him to go give a eulogy, and he just didn't want to. Uh, and Jen Psaki and Josh Ernest were in the Oval Office too. And the president said to Valerie, I have nothing left to say. Mm-hmm. We have run out of words. And it was the only time he ever said something like that. Mm-hmm. He, he pointed at me and said, do you, have, do you have any words left? And I said no. And it was, it was the first time he'd used me as a human shield instead of a punching bag. And for that, I was very <laughs> grateful. But it was actually Josh Ernest, who um, is a deeply religious man. He just doesn't wear it on his sleeve. He said, you know, Mr. President, I was very moved by what those families did. And if you, if you do decide to go speak, you could talk about that. And that's when the president kind of softened. But, but during that debate, he'd also teed off on the Confederate flag a little bit too and just kind of – sometimes it's just kind of like releasing a steam valve uh, in the Oval Office when the cameras are off. And so I went and worked on the speech as hard as I could. I really struggled through it to try to make this all make sense. And at the same time, part of the drama in this week is the Supreme Court is poised to rule on Obamacare for the second time and on marriage equality. And we don't know which way they're going to go. There, there's a real chance that they could knock down Obamacare and kick millions of people off their health insurance, You know, people who are working mm-hmm. two jobs. There's a real chance they could say, no, there is no constitutional right to marriage equality and tell millions of Americans you're basically second-class citizens. You don't get to get married like the rest of us. So all this is swirling around. And by the time we get to the 10th day of the week, the day of the eulogy, uh, we won Obamacare on, on Thursday. Friday morning, the Supreme Court finds a right to marriage equality. So, you know, there are kind of these jubilant scenes on the steps of the Supreme Court, but also throughout the White House. And, and, and I'd been really nervous all week long. How, how do I look my colleagues in the eye, my gay colleagues in the eye, if the Supreme Court says you don't get to get married? And so mm-hmm. we won that too. And the president's still mindful that, that he is going to eulogize um, a victim of a, a white supremacist mass shooting. That day, but so he went out and spoke in the Rose Garden that morning about marriage equality and, and had some really kind of beautiful ad libs there. But he'd also he'd torn up the back half of the eulogy the night before. Um, he called me back into the White House around 11 p.m. into the residence, and he just he he the first two pages were were edited in his usual fashion, and pages three and four just had one line through each of them, and he had never done that to me before. I'd had three days, and he rewrote those two pages by hand in three hours. Mm. Um, and I, I apologized to him for the first time because I just – I felt like I'd let him down. Just getting back to wanting to get him something perfect. I hadn't even gotten him something good. Um, and this is, this is where he's such a good boss. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, no, brother, we're collaborators. You gave me what I, you gave me what I needed to work with here. And when you read this, you'll see a bunch of your stuff in there. Um, and trust me, when you've been thinking about race for 40 years, you'll know what you want to say too. And what he had done was basically I had written the phrase Amazing Grace and then he added the lyrics and built the entire second half of the speech, which is really more of a sermon than a eulogy, around um, the lyrics to Amazing Grace. And so right after he spoke in the Rose Garden on Friday morning, we boarded the helicopter five minutes later to go to Andrews Air Force Base. And he was still working on the eulogy. And he handed it back to me when we landed and stood up and said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And that hadn't even occurred to me. Mm, Okay, so there was some thought that it it – it could lead into that because it seems natural to, to, to do that. 
Yeah, and it, that was all him. That, that was mm-hmm. not, you know, I didn't write in there, sir, sing here. Um, I forgot to tell anybody else back at the White House that he <laughs> said he was going to sing because I was just, you know, I'd been up like three nights in a row. So everyone was was just astonished when he actually did it. And mm-hmm. that, that clip you played earlier where he was talking about Marilyn Robinson and that Reservoir of Goodness, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself here. I was not familiar with Marilyn Robinson at the time. And so I'm working on the speech on Air Force One on our way to Charleston, and my wife um, was one of the president's fact checkers. So she was fact checking the speech in real time, and she said, hey, I can't find this quote anywhere. We need to make sure this is real uh, because the press is going to ask us about it. So I had to walk up to the front of the plane, and the president's putting on his tie, and the first lady's touching up her makeup, and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, Who is Marilyn Robinson? It's so embarrassing in retrospect. I just hadn't read her books because, you know, in the White House, you work 16-hour weeks. And he goes, oh, she's my pen pal. And I just kind of look at the first lady and she just shrugs at me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so where, where did this quote come from? And he said, we write each other letters. And I was just like, what are you talking? Okay, fine. And I go back and I go back and tell my wife. I'm like, listen, uh, he writes letters to this author. So we're just going to have to trust him on this one. Well, he, he said um, – he mentions a, a reservoir of goodness um, and that if we can find grace, then everything can change. So, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, Cody, we talked about what's the definition of, of grace. And I, I love that uh, a description, a reservoir of goodness. Um, what is it like for you to hear this, that, that parts of that speech and that singing again? Is it, it, how does that make you feel? It never gets old. Uh, if, if people want to introduce me by having the president sing Amazing Grace for the rest of my life, I'm cool with that. <laughs> there are worse ways. And so um, what do you think uh, Barack Obama wanted to communicate by singing? Because he's got the speech. He's got the words. You hear the, the call and the response, the congregation, you know, uh, connecting with him. Uh, what did singing do that couldn't be done just by speaking? It's this leap of faith that he took to expose himself in that way. I mean, public speaking is tough enough, maybe not mm-hmm. for him, but to sing in front of the whole world. And you knew the world was watching this. I had, I right. had people, I had friends in Europe texting me that they were watching it. Um, it's a real leap of faith. And it's, it's I mean, in, in such incredible stark contrast to his successor. But he, he gave this interview earlier that week um, on a podcast with, with uh, Mark Maron. And this was two days after the Charleston shootings. Uh, and the president spent a lot of time talking about race, but also talking about the fact that seven years into his presidency, he f- he finally felt like, you know, he was firing on all cylinders. He felt liberated. He felt this freedom that comes with, um, you know, kind of tumbling over Niagara Falls a bunch of times and surviving. And and that's what I saw when he went up there and sang this this kind of freedom. And it was this this beautiful moment. I mean, he knew in in ways that again I wouldn't know that. This was an AME church service. It just happened to be in an arena at a eulogy. And he knew that they would be there to join him and sing. And you could hear, you know, the whole band jumps in, the organist, the guitarist. Um, and it was just this remarkable moment. It, 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 how often does the entire country see a black church service with, you know, a black president adopting a preacher's cadence, tying together American exceptionalism and progressive theory in this quintessentially American event, even though it was, it was rooted in, in something also quintessentially American and terrible, um, it was extraordinary. And it, as soon as I saw him take the stage and saw everybody there, you just knew he was going to sing. There was no question. 
Cody, you continued to work with President Obama after his uh, time, after his term of, of president ended. Uh, you worked with him for, I think, uh, another four years, and that was during the Trump administration. What did you hear from Barack Obama during that time? How did the two of you discuss what you were then seeing in American politics that you yeah. can tell us on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, he had a decision to make early on. Typically, um, former presidents don't weigh in. You know, they, they, it's just kind of tradition. This was a not a time when that was going to be okay. So he made a decision early on. Look, when um, when our most deeply held values are at stake, I'll say something. And he had to speak within that first week uh, when when the Trump administration tried to enact a Muslim ban. Um, he had to do it over and over again when they tried to repeal Obamacare. When they tried to when they pulled out of the Paris Treaty. Um, just over and over. And, and he ended up speaking out, you know, way more than any other uh, former president had to. Um, and so it, it was It was still a privilege to be able, you know, I missed having a team. I had an incredible team of speechwriters in the White House. And, and but then it was just it was just me and him writing after that. But, you know, he he gave a, a pretty um, somber 2020 Democratic National Convention speech in which he warned that um, democracy was really at stake. And and, you know, writing, working with him on his memoirs uh, was cathartic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, working on mine was even more cathartic. But he, you know, it, he just, he viewed it as his responsibility to to just speak up and remain some sort of moral compass uh, in a time when we didn't have one in the Oval Office. You know, the country has been through a lot since the Obama years with Donald Trump taking office, the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, the unrest and, and racial reckoning that has followed, and the insurrection on January 6th. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, after having worked so closely uh, with President Obama for so many years, I mean, you have a, a very unique perspective on American politics. And, and um, how has your time in the White House affected how, how you view what we're seeing today? You know, I, there's the, the story of America is a story of progress and backlash to that progress. And, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was that those 10 days were just this extraordinary burst of progress. Um, but they didn't belong to him. They belonged to people who had marched and organized for decades for universal health care, for marriage equality, for, for all these things. And it, progress is fragile and it takes a long, long time and it's very easy to undo. Um, it's much easier to destroy than it is to build. And we're living through one of those times of backlash. I, I, I'd be wary of anyone who thinks they, who claims to know what elections mean and, and where our politics are, because I don't think anybody truly does. What I think is, you know, the country is still changing rapidly, um, I think for the better. Uh, but a lot of people don't share that sentiment. And so we live through this backlash through one of the organizing principles of the Republican Party now is to punish people um, who may not look like them or think like them. And, you know, that's something that we constantly need to push back on and, and stand up for. You know, the the thesis of this book I took from um, President Obama's speech in Selma in 2015 on the 50th anniversary of the marches from Selma to Montgomery. And it's he added to that speech that he said Selma was not a clash of armies but a clash of wills a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And I just apply that to our politics. I mean, every day, faster and faster, partially fueled by social media, we are always in this battle to determine the true meaning of America. Are we a country that actually stands up for our founding ideals and tries to make them real in our time? Or are we a country where 
you know, like the people on the other side of that bridge, we exercise our power to, to keep people in their place. Um, I think, I think it'd be better to, to, to finally live up to our obligations to be a true multiracial, multi-everything democracy. Yeah, I, I keep we keep I keep using the word uh, pivotal time. I mean, this this feels like a pivotal time in American history. Uh, we're you know at a time where politics is, is very partisan, and, and many of, of us feel like the, the future is very uncertain. Uh, tonight, we're waiting for an announcement uh, from former President Donald Trump. Uh, many people believe he will announce that he is running for president again. And so, how do you think that is is sitting with a lot of people right now? Um, how do you think people uh, are feeling about this or what could this mean for our country? Well, I think you still have to assume he's the presumptive Republican frontrunner. Um, he did not have a good week last week. He's in a position of pretty significant weakness right now. And you actually see the party sort of fight the Republican party sort of fighting itself in ways that it hasn't in a while. Um, you know, and as a Democrat, it's, it's nice to see a different party do that for once. But <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't think it's good for the country. I think the next two years will be you know, frustrating and, and, and annoying. But I actually think he has his work cut out for him this time in ways that he didn't last time. Let's take uh, another phone call or some calls, uh, Cody. Uh, we're talking with Cody Keenan, uh, who was the senior advisor and director of speech writing for former President Barack Obama, the author of the new book, Grace. Uh, in St. Paul, we've got Sammy on the phone. Good morning, Sammy. And what did you want to share or ask? I think that Rachel... Inequities and discrimination has been a huge thing concerning my relationship. Like, I ended up getting ticketed pretty much due to my partner being a person of color and not having the right way to... I, I don't know. So you're, it's, you're, it's just you're, you're, you're struggling talking about race. It's hard to find the words, Sammy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. your question for Cody is maybe how do you write about and talk about race? Yeah. Like there, there was no reason for me to be pulled over aside from the fact that my partner was black. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Sammy, what do you, what do you hear there? Uh, Cody and her voice. Frustration. Um, and, you know, it, it immediately makes me go back to the months after George Floyd, um, when I think, you know, a whole bunch of white people, myself included, uh, even even those of us who thought we were always on the right side of the issues had to do, you know, kind of a real self-reckoning and make sure that we were. Um, I don't know how to fix it. You know, we, we spent eight years and, and, you know, Barack Obama didn't talk about race every day. Um, but I think for for all of our you know, I've had some interesting conversations with with um, Black Americans over the course of this tour who are you know disappointed in uh, the Obama years that it didn't not that it didn't fix everything because I don't think anyone's that naive but but that it didn't do as much as they hoped um, and I get that the and then you have to live through four years of a president who actually does the opposite by trying to pry open our racial divisions and you know people ask me all the time. Uh, do speeches still matter? Um, well, I mean, obviously I think they do, but one way to prove it is you just look at, you know, President Trump um, when he was president. You, a president's words matter. He tore mm-hmm. open some pretty nasty stuff and and basically gave people a permission structure to um, not just say awful things, but actually engage in political violence. 
Um, you know, you just you just have to look at, at January sixth. But but even before that, you had this whole spate of you know racially motivated mass shootings, misogynistic mass shootings, uh, and these were all people who were you know big fans and supporters. Um, so a, a president's words do matter, and I don't I don't think this country can afford another four years of that. Cody, let's take another phone call. In Duluth, we have Pat on the phone. Good morning, Pat. What did you want to share with us? Yes, good morning. I think when you hear a speech, you uh, pay attention not only to the words, but the sound of the voice. I think voice, I think a speech and, and speaking has a certain cadence to it. And I was wondering if, as you wrote for the president, did you hear in your mind uh, the president speaking those words? Yes, that's very insightful. Absolutely. It, it, it takes time. Um, my first two years as a speechwriter for him, I was a junior speechwriter. It was during the campaign and he was off uh, campaigning all around the country. I didn't meet him until we were in the Oval Office. It was our second day of work, um, which again, you know, to, to keep your counter going, it was terrifying. Um, but, but you really only get inside someone's head and understand their voice after working with them one-on-one closely. And it, it, took, me, it took me some time where it, it moves from mimicry to actually understanding them and hearing them in your head. And yes, when I, when I would write, I could hear him in my head. I could hear his cadence. Um, when you're writing a speech, I teach speech writing now at Northwestern University, and I tell my students, read it out loud because that's the whole point of it. You know, a speech is meant to be delivered. You will hear in your in your head, uh, and the president was good at this. If he he would practice on the day of a big speech, and he'd say, you know, that sentence needs one more syllable or one less syllable. It gets to the point where once you're past the big picture edits, you're actually kind of working it into sheet music because it is like Pat said, a performance. Yeah, what does um, it sound like? Right? What does it sound like? Right, you're ready for and it. I often liken it to uh, I studied abroad in Spain during college, and the first time you dream in a foreign language, you're like, whoa, what? The first time I, if, yeah. <laughs> The first time you, I dreamt uh, in Obama speak was, was sort of the same thing. <laughs> you know, you mentioned something I didn't know that that you've uh, also written speeches for former First Lady Michelle Obama. So um, we talked about you really have to to write a speech for someone. You really have to get in their head. So what is it like to write for Michelle Obama? Oh man, it, it, just as terrifying. Um, <laughs> but but she's so. I, I've only written a few for her, so I don't want to get carried mm-hmm. away. But but she was. She's so warm and generous with her time. What, what's, what's interesting is they have very different approaches to it. Um, President Obama typically expected his drafts the night before, unless it was a really big, long speech, then maybe three or four days out or a State of the Union address a week out. The First Lady wanted hers two weeks out, um, and she had, she had a couple extraordinary speechwriters of her own. Uh, I only pitched in when they were unavailable. Um, but she liked to work on her speech every day for two weeks straight until it was exactly as she wanted it. So mm-hmm. the two of them couldn't have been more, more different in their approach. But she had this quality on game day uh, when she was giving a speech where, you know, she her voice can just kind of ride the razor's edge of tears. And it just makes you sit up and listen. Mm. And we should mention um, former First Lady Michelle Obama. She has a new book out, The Light We Carry. Uh, so tell me, you know, I, I read Becoming. I, and when, uh, you know, when she came to the Twin Cities, I, I went to that. Uh, she reveals so much uh, about her personal life uh, and Becoming and, and, and this new book. And what do you think that is about? Well, first, first of all, I'm grateful that her book came out six weeks after mine. Um, <laughs> Give you a little head no, start. <laughs> there is no competing there. Her her uh, her events will be a little bit larger. Um, you know, first ladies sacrifice a lot, uh, and she'll be the first to tell. I watched her on Colbert last night, and she'll be the first to tell you that this is not 
complaining to be a first lady is an extraordinary thing, but but you you give up your career, you give up your freedom, um, your privacy, you know, your privacy. You you get to live you know an amazing life in the White House, and mm-hmm. but but uh, you are kind of cut off from society for a while. So I I don't want to speak for her because I don't I don't know uh, what she went through while writing the book, but I have to assume that that sort of like mine, it was cathartic. I bet. And, um, you know, I feel like when I read Becoming, I learned a lot about myself. And it was just nice to have uh, many of the things that she wrote about. It was very affirming. I'm like, oh, like she felt the same way I feel or she struggled with that, too. And uh, I think that's a a very generous thing to do because, you know, you don't have to share all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, this always shocks people when I say it, but I I believe it. President Obama and Mrs. Obama are the most normal first couple we've ever had. And what I mean by that is you might look at them and say, well, hang on, they're the first black first family. But they were also just, when they when they entered the White House, they were four years removed from paying off their student loans. They were two <laughs> years removed from pumping their own gas. Wow. Like they didn't, they didn't come up through 30 years of a, of a, you know, a staff of yes men and yes women. They didn't come up through prep schools and Yale, you know. Um, of course, they went to Harvard Law, but they really were kind of the more normal president first lady that we've ever had who are more representative of America who grew up the way that more and more Americans are growing up now. And Cody, what do you want people to take away from your book? What do you think it can tell us um, about the meaning of America? That, that progress is really, really hard. Democracy is really hard. It is a grind, um, mm. but it's also worth it. You know, it, sometimes it takes decades to get what you want, which can be very, very frustrating. But we can also do amazing things together. Um, and and I, we are fed the steady diet of cynicism all the time. Mm-hmm. And working in that White House for eight years, that was, that was actually one of our biggest battles was to fight off people's cynicism. Um, but it was also a place of joy and friendship and family and camaraderie. Uh, and I want you know, young people like my students to read this book and think that politics is a worthy endeavor, a good place for them to, to pour their time and energy. And in our last minute, I'll end on a personal note. You and your now wife work together in the West Wing, and you now have a baby daughter who is named Grace. Yeah, um, she just turned two the other day, if you can believe that. Oh, so she's a toddler. I'm sorry, Miss Grace. Toddler named no, she's, Grace. She's still my baby. Yeah. What led you to name uh, your daughter Grace? We we moved to New York City two months before the pandemic. Uh, obviously, you don't know it's coming. And then we found out my wife, Kristen, was pregnant two weeks before everything shut down in New York. And... 2020 was a tumultuous year between the pandemic and, uh, you know, New York had about two months of protests after George Floyd and then we had the contested election. But but Gracie, to get back to your very first question this hour, um, she was a remarkably complication-free pregnancy and she kicked at the same time every night. She was a blessing that uh, we didn't deserve. Uh, so we named her Grace. That was Cody Keenan, a senior advisor and director of speech writing for former President Barack Obama. I spoke to him last fall about his book, Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. This conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everyone. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 9.